seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and I want you to actually turn to two different places this morning. Matthew 28 and John chapter 20. So if you have a, uh, the app on your phone there, it's, uh, it's right there on the app. But if you don't have an app and you want to use your paper Bible, just kind of have both of those places there. Matthew 28 and John chapter 20. We're going to go be looking back and forth uh, with those. We're in a series called Come and Go. It's actually the last week of our series together. And uh, this series is really about the kingdom of God. We said that really from day one. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Jesus answers that question uh, a lot in scripture. The kingdom of God is the church of Christ. It is us. That There is uh, coming a day where there's going to be a physical kingdom of God set up here on earth. But until that time, there is this spiritual kingdom that we as believers get to be a part of. The kingdom of God, the church. And we've been talking about what the church is about and why the church exists every week this series. And I want to just kind of review what we've said in the past there in your introduction. The purpose, which is the why, and the progress, which is what we do. The purpose and progress of the church can be summed up into two reflexes. Come and see and go and tell. And we talked about this, what a reflex is. A reflex is, is really something like what we do when we breathe. It's this idea of something involuntary happening due to an outside stimulus. Okay, that's kind of like the, the Webster's definition of it. But think about breathing. Air comes and air goes. Air comes and air goes. And here's the crazy thing about that reflex. If we, we don't really think about that, but if that didn't happen we would die. We wouldn't live. And just as our body has reflexes, I believe the church, the body of Christ, has these two reflexes as well. Come and see and go and tell. And last week we looked at what the first reflex was, this idea of come and see. It's this idea that when we come together, we are breathing in as the body of Christ. It's We are gathering together and we are coming and seeing what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, that we're doing that every Sunday. We're invited to do this. Every week when we go to our connect group or when we're with a small group of believers, we are invited to come and see what God has done, is doing, and will do. And we have a fancy word for this called worship. It's worship. It's what we're doing right now. But it's more than just that reflex, right? It's not just come and see. The second reflex is, is, is this idea of go and tell. And this is the breathe out reflex of the church. That we come in together and then we go out. We breathe out together. Now think about this, this reflex. Imagine this. What happens if you can breathe in but you can't breathe out? What happens to you? You die, you die right? You, you, you don't live anymore. What happens if you can breathe in but you can't breathe out? You still die, right? Yeah, you die. This is the way it works in the church. You can't have one reflex without the other, that both are so important to the church. It's not enough for us to just to come and see that every time we come and see, we have the privilege to go out of these glass doors to go out and tell. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Each day, we are commanded to go and tell what God has done, is doing, and will do. And we have a fancy word for this as well. And it's called missions. 
We call this missions. We have worship together, and then as we go and tell, we are on mission. The reflex, this reflex of the church establishes its progress. And here's what I want you to think about. This morning as we start, I want you to ask this question in your mind. Is our church doing this well? Are we fulfilling this idea as a church of go and tell? And then here's the second question, and this is the one that's a little more painful to answer. Are you as an individual fulfilling this progress, fulfilling this reflex of come and see and go and tell? So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 28, you see this progress in Matthew 28. And I don't know if you've recognized this, and some of you are probably more clever than I, and you've probably figured this out by now, but we have talked about Matthew 28 every single week of this series. And the reason for this is this is a pivotal chapter in the book or in the Bible. This is a pivotal chapter with this idea of come and see and go and tell. So I want us to look at this from the top in verse 1. Jesus has been crucified He's been, he's been dead for three days. And right here in this chapter, we already, a lot of us already know this, he is about to be resurrected. In fact, it starts with them discovering that he is resurrected. So look with me in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, at the first day of the week, uh, began to draw, uh, began to dawn, sorry, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, wouldn't it be terrible to be the other Mary? Like, that's the worst title ever. Hey, this is my friend Frank Black and the other Frank. I mean, like, who wants to be the other anything, right? But this is how the Bible says it. It's, it's, give it, it's a man for you, by the way, that wrote this. Um, so that's, that's what we have here. Now, here's the thing. Before we move on to verse 2, we got to set this up. The reason that we're looking in two different places today, and I'm going to make reference to a few other places, is we are going through the events of the resurrection. And the only way to do that is to look at really all four gospels. All four gospel writers tell us something about the resurrection, and they sometimes tell us something different about the resurrection. Now, here's the thing. For those of you in here that might be skeptical, you might be looking at the Bible and thinking, I don't know if I really believe that. I mean, you've got four different accounts, and, and they're, they're, they're telling you different things. It's not that these things are contradicting one another. It's very similar to what happens when you have several people tell you the same story or the same event. Mission serve. They just got an opportunity to get back from Alabama, right? Is that good? And I had the privilege to, uh, to go and listen that night as they shared about what God did in Alabama. And every student had the opportunity to share, which is pretty awesome when you think about the small time constraint. Christian was good about getting them through. Um, but here's what's interesting about them all sharing. Each one of them shared, and some of what they shared overlaid with what other people shared. And then some of the things that were shared were totally new things that we hadn't heard before. Now, was any of it false? No. It was different perspectives that God had shown them something. And when you piece it all together, you have this incredible report of what God did at Mission Serve. This is the way the Bible's working here. And the reason I tell you that is because we have to see what's going on here. In this verse, we have two people mentioned, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. But here's the deal with this. There's actually many more women at the tomb at this. If you go look in Mark's account, you'll see this. Mark talks about this. Also, Luke talks about this, that there are more women 
at the tomb. And let's be honest, before we go beat up these guys, how many of you men, like, it's hard enough for you to keep up with your own wife's whereabouts. Like, these guys are trying to keep up with many, wives, many women, okay? So it's one of those things, they're like, okay, uh, who was there? We don't know, we don't know. There's just a lot of women there, okay? So if you want to go look at this yourself, you can see this, there's a lot of women there. The other thing that's interesting about this story is after this verse, Mark, Matthew doesn't tell you this, but John does, Mary leaves, so Mary goes to the tomb, she looks inside, she doesn't see Jesus there, and she panics. She thinks someone's stolen the body. She leaves before the next verses occur, okay? So she's gone to go tell the disciples that someone's stolen the body. That's important because we're going to come back to Mary in a little bit. But look at this. Uh, so Mary's MIA, look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, again, multiple women there, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. That is like one of the most important verses in all the Bible. As he said, come and see. Come and worship. Come and see what God's done. Come and see the place where the Lord laid. So this angel is inviting these women to come and to worship. And he's about to change something here for them. We're about to see something happen. A big shift from come and see to go and tell. Look at the first point there on your outline. When we go and tell... Worship becomes missions. Worship becomes missions. Look at verse 6 again. The angel said, Come and see the place where the Lord laid. And then right after that, what does he say? And go quickly and tell. Come and see and go quickly and tell. His disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This is, shows you what happens after every come and see event in church history. That there is a come and see moment where we come and we see what God has done, is doing, and will do. But it doesn't just stay there. That immediately the reflex after this is for us to go and tell. This is the reflex of the church. Worship becomes missions. You see, the grace of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God in our lives doesn't terminate with us. It's not like we have the God's love and God's glory and God's, God's grace and mercy that gets bestowed on our lives. It's not like we take it in and say, oh, thank you for that, God. Now I'm going to go live my life the way I want to. No, it's not that. It's this idea that as it comes in, it goes out. That we cannot divorce the assistance of God from the assignment of God. That we have a responsibility, not just to receive God's assistance in our lives, but that we have a responsibility and even an assignment from God. I love the completeness of the song that we just sang because it's such a, an incredible gospel story, really, of creation to the cross. But you know what I love about that song? It doesn't finish with this idea of Jesus saving us and Jesus left the grave behind, so, so will I. That's a great song. That's a great moment. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to talk about the 8 billion people that we have the opportunity to surrender and love and to share God's love with. 
And this is how it works in our lives. Knowing this and believing this drives us outward. Our worship fuels, it should, fuel missions. It causes us, think about this, our worship causes us to see where worship is not going on. It causes us to see every place on earth where worship is not happening. And that's not just Nepal and Africa and Guatemala. That's also right here in Shelby in households all around this five-mile radius. That when we worship God and see who he is and what he's about and what he's done, it causes us to think, man, everybody needs this. Everybody needs this. And not just does everybody need this, there is a God in heaven that deserves the praises of every single human being on planet earth. He is worthy of that. And so worship always drives us to missions. John Piper, he's kind of a really deep thinker. He says this, missions exists because worship does not. And what he's saying there is, it's not our worship doesn't exist. He's saying there are places all over the world that worship does not exist. And because of that, we have a responsibility to go and be on mission, to go and tell. Now imagine these women, if right here, we, we know the story because we're here. We know what happens. We know what happens with the women and the disciples. We know that they go from this place and they go and tell and they go and tell and they go and tell and they go and make disciples and, and everything changes. But imagine had they not done that Imagine had they never left. Imagine if once they see the risen Savior, they just were like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for, for dying for me. This is such a great thing. We're just, we're, us, the 30 of us or the 100 of us or the 70 of us are just going to kind of do our thing. No, because they knew that worship becomes missions, because of that, we're here today. Because of what they chose to do back then. Next, when we go and tell, fear becomes faith. Fear becomes faith. Look at verse 8. So they went out, these women, they went out from the tomb with fear and great joy, comma, and ran to bring his disciples' word. Now here's the thing. Remember we just said this. Many different accounts of Scripture. There is something that happens in that comma. You can see it right there in your Bible. There's a little comma here, okay? Mark tells us what that comma is all about. Mark 16, 8, it's coming up on the screen. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now here's the deal. Mark is not contradicting Matthew. It's not like Mark's saying, hey, they never told a soul what happened because they were scared. No, what it's saying here is in this comma, in this comma, there is a pause of these women. That they are sitting there, and here's the question they're asking. Are we going to be ruled by our fear? Are we going to be ruled by our fear? Fear is almost always associated with an expectation of some sort of suffering. Think about that. Anytime you're fearful of something, it's because there's this potential expectation of something that's going to create some suffering in your life or the life of someone else. And in the context of going and telling people about the Lord, it's this idea of uh, this fear of rejection or this fear of ridicule or this fear of some kind of persecution. Think about it, guys. Fear is such a deterrent from going and telling. We had the opportunity in student ministry uh, 
it, it's such an incredible thing. Uh, our student pastor, Christian, is amazing, by the way. If you haven't got a chance to meet him, uh, and if, if you can, man, pray for that ministry. That ministry is awesome. But one of the things that he decided to do a few weeks ago is he decided to allow students to speak each Wednesday night for about three or four weeks. And what was amazing is one of the weeks we talked about this very thing, missions, going and telling. And we had a small group time after, and I have an opportunity to work with mainly ninth and 10th graders in a small group setting. And Christian and those, the, the students that led had some questions for us to ask. And one of the questions that came up was, what scares you the most? Like, where's the place that you're scared the most to share? And I'm not betraying any confidence because the group was unanimous on this, okay? You know where, where the, the scariest place for a student to share is? School. School. Not, not Nepal. Not Africa. Not Guatemala. School. And before I go picking on students about that, can I just be honest for, for us adults, if we're really honest with ourselves, for most of us adults in this room, it's the same kind of thing. For me. I can get on a plane to Nepal. I can sleep like a baby the whole way there. I cannot even think about the plane landing or crashing into the water. I cannot think about, I don't think about bacteria and what I eat killing me or anything like that. I don't, I don't really, I'll be honest, I don't really think about that. But you know what scares me? What scares me is talking to the guy that I share the soccer field with as a parent. We've got this, this family that, that honestly, that me and Crystal are kind of talking to right now, and, um, and he's there, and uh, his, his kids play soccer, and our kids play soccer, and we get to sit with him every Saturday morning. And I can feel it, man. The Lord's just burdening my heart. And you know what? I'm scared. You know why I'm scared? This man's a doctor. And the fear that grips me is he's going to think I'm an idiot. For bringing this up. I mean, he's this educated man. He's really smart. He's going to think I'm some dummy. That's a, that's a pastor of this church. A missions pastor of the church, by the way, has fear. We all have fear in regards to this. But the question is not, do we have fear? The question is, are we going to let our fear dictate to us who we're going to be as a people of God and who we're going to go preach and proclaim God's word to? It's one thing to go across the ocean, but what about the people I see every day? Your co-workers, your family, your friends. Think about who these women were told to go talk to. They weren't commanded to go talk to the emperor of Rome. Who are they supposed to go tell? The disciples. They're friends. And yet, there was fear. But look at their obedience here in Matthew 28. Look at verse 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to bring his disciples the word. They overcame their fear. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. I love this verse because if you remember, the angels already said, hey, you're going to see Jesus in Galilee. He's going to be there. But you know what's cool about this? Jesus doesn't wait to Galilee to go see these women. They step out in their faith. They step out in their obedience and Jesus meets them on the way. And this is the beauty of God, is that he comes to meet us in our step of faith. He doesn't say, hey, get to the end and I'll be there. No, he meets us on the way to do what we're called to do. So when we step out of our fear and say, hey, I'm going to just be faithful to talk to this guy. He doesn't wait to the end of the conversation to meet with me and say, hey, good job, Jonathan, great job. No, he gets in the conversation with me. 
He's there with me. He meets with me. And then Jesus says this great word. It's kind of an odd word for here. With, with great fear and great joy, he meets them. and they, they have great fear, great joy. He meets them, and this is the word he says to them. Rejoice. What a weird word. Rejoice. This isn't the first time he said this in such a weird context. If you remember in Matthew 5, Pastor Gary preached on this a few weeks ago, the Beatitudes, the blessed is this, blessed is that, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst out of, after righteousness. And you have all these blesseds, and every one of them is this nice little poem. I mean, it's one of those things that you would stitch on a pillow, you know, and put in your house. And they're all really nice and pretty and make you feel good until the very last one. Have you ever noticed this? The last one, Jesus kind of throws them for a curveball. He says, blessed are you when, verse 11, blessed are you when, not if, when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. That's the word again. In the spite of all that, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, even if your worst fears are realized, even if your worst fears are realized and rejection comes and persecution comes and being misunderstood comes, can we just say for a second, that's the, that's the mantra of the church. We are the most misunderstood group of people in our culture. It doesn't matter what we say, Half the time, whatever we say gets twisted and turned by culture. Have you noticed that? But even if, even if we're misunderstood, we are to rejoice. But here's the thing. Here's the, 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 the niche on this, on this little word. We never, hardly ever actually get to the persecution. And do you know why? Because we have given up in freedom what people in persecution never give up. The resolve to go and tell what God has done. That there are people in the earth, on the earth, right now, that are dying for their faith, telling people about the Lord. And the Church of America, by and large, is silent. That's why when we read this verse, we don't really understand it. Because for some of us, we don't get to the persecution because we don't get to the go and tell. Billy Graham said one of his statistics is that nine out of ten church-going people will never go and tell anything about God and Jesus Christ, what he's done to his soul. Nine out of ten. If you're like me, when you hear a statistic, I automatically start counting ten people around me to kind of get a visual of that. And maybe you're doing that right now. Imagine that for just a second. Out of the ten of the people that you just counted that are right around you, only one of you is actually going to share the good news of Jesus Christ. When this is commanded... And this is the thing, when we don't share Christ with others because we fear rejection or persecution, we're saying that we value our image more than we value God's glory. And Jesus is saying to us, hey, there is something better. That when we come and see, when we truly grasp, not just sing songs, when we truly grasp the depth of our depravity and the depth of God's grace and mercy in our lives, when we come and see what God has done, the worth of Christ overshadows the weight of any possible suffering. And this is what we see all over the world. That there comes a point for each of us that we have to decide, is Christ really worth it? Or is this just something we do during the week? Is this just something we do 
We're going to just come and, and see. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And there's never that go and tell. God deserves better. Verse 9, so they came and held him. Remember, they're seeing Jesus. They came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. There's a come and see moment there. Then Jesus said to them, after the come and see, what happens? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Next, when we go and tell, interruptions become opportunities. Interruptions become opportunities. Turn to John chapter 20, if you flip over there. Remember I told you we were going to come back to Mary. Mary is, is uh, MIA. She went to the disciples. She told them about the body missing. And now she's back at the tomb. And look at what it says in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had laid. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around, and look at this. She saw Jesus standing there. So she's, she's talking to these angels. She turns around, and Jesus is right in front of her. But look, and she did not know that it was Jesus. How in the world could she miss him? How could that happen? This is the person she's looking for. Like she's literally looking around for Jesus, trying to identify him, and he's right in front of her. And she doesn't recognize him. And the question becomes, how can this happen? We know how it can happen. If we're really honest, we know exactly how it can happen. Because Mary at this point, she's frustrated, she's fearful, and she's busy. She's busy looking for her Savior. And in the process of her busyness, she misses him all together. We know how this works. In fact, my wife makes fun of me because this has literally happened three times in our marriage that I can count. She probably knows more. You ever been in a scurry? I don't even know if that's a word, but it's like when you're a little frustrated and you're in a hurry. We call it a scurry, or I call it a scurry. Um, here's the deal. You ever been here? This, this is me. Crystal, I cannot find my phone. I don't know where it is. I'm late. And then she nicely says, Jonathan, you're talking to me on it. How does that happen? Huh? The thing that's interrupting me from finding the thing I need is the thing that I need. And here's the truth. We see this taking place right here in this passage. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Because of her self-occupying little world that she's in. She's got these horse blinders on. She can't see what's right in front of her. She can't see anything. And then Jesus, in verse 16, I love this. Jesus said to her, and I believe he said this with love, but he said this with firmness, because there's an exclamation point there. Jesus said to her, Mary, hey, Snap out of it. You're missing me. I wonder how many times we miss Jesus. I'm reminded of uh, Jesus when he's in the upper room with his disciples. He's washed their feet. 
And he, he gives them a new command there in, at the Last Supper. And John 13, it's kind of on the screen. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that, hey, this is the last time he's going to talk, or one of the last time he's going to talk to these disciples, that this is a big deal. He reiterates something like this in Matthew 25 when he says, if you've done this to the least of these, you've done this to who? To me. What Jesus is saying here is he's coordinating, look at this, the great commission to go with the great commandment to love. That these two things walk hand in hand. And in our context as believers, here it is. Whether we see Jesus or whether we miss Jesus rises and falls on do we love the people that God has put in our path to go and tell or do we see them as interruptions? You see, Mary saw Jesus here as an interruption because she was preoccupied with other things. And we as a society, we get so bogged down into that mentality of I've got to, I'm, I'm I'm going for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. I was convicted about this yesterday. I was actually at home by myself. Crystal had taken the boys to a party just to give me some time to study, and I was sitting on my back porch with the windows open, and I was reading over my notes and studying and praying, and we have a person that lives on our block or a family that lives on our block that's, that honestly, it's, it's, it's a struggle in our, in our neighborhood. And I could hear them cussing loudly, and here's the thing. I got very irritated. I was literally like, you're interrupting my time with God. I'm preparing to go do ministry tomorrow. Quit interrupting. And here's the thing. Sometimes I think we're just like that. That we see those moments as interruptions when God sees them as opportunities. When he's saying to me in that moment, hey, why don't, why don't you take two seconds away from some other ministry you're preparing for and why don't you pray for those two people right there? Why don't you use this time to gather information about how God's going to use this not as an interruption in your life but as an opportunity in your life? Because God makes people and people make issues but people aren't issues. We have a responsibility. Here's, here's something to think about. I want people to meet me and feel like they met Jesus. I want people to meet me and feel like they met Jesus. And you know what? That's a great sermon one-liner. Like, that's awesome. But here's the truth. How often do I actually project that? That when we go and tell, we've got to go and love as well. Next, when we go and tell, darkness becomes light. Darkness becomes light. Look at verse 19 of John 20. Then the same day at evening, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. And I'm going to stop there. I know that's not even a full sentence. But I want you to imagine this setting. It's nighttime. It's dark. The windows are shut. The doors are shut. And the disciples are gathered together, huddled and hiding. And then in their darkness, the light of the world enters the room. Okay, John calls Jesus that. He calls him that in John chapter 1. Well, now they're in the darkness in John 20, and he enters the room. Verse 19, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, 
peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see, the light of the world didn't just come to hide in the huddle with them. It wasn't like he got there and they were like, hey, this is great. We're going to just have church forever right here in this little room. No, he comes into the room. He invites them to come and see the scars in his side, to worship him. And then what does he do? He sends them out as lights in the world. You see, Jesus is not the only light of the world. Jesus actually calls us the light of the world. He says it there, Matthew 5, on the screen here. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, here's the truth. We walk around in a world full of darkness. Imagine this for just a second. This is, the, this is the state of our world. It doesn't take you five minutes to turn on the news and you see the darkness. To go to your Facebook feed this afternoon and guess what? You're going to see the darkness. It's in our relationships. It's in our conversations. We see it from house to house. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're in Nepal worshiping the gods and idols there. Or whether you're in this world in America worshiping the material gods and idols we have here. That darkness is everywhere. It's not a respecter of persons. That this is, this is where we're at. But Jesus calls us the light of the world. He calls us the light of the world and he says, hey, you have an opportunity to do something great for me. That what I've done in you is not meant to stay in you. It's supposed to go through you. That he's done something in me so that I can do something for him. And that we have this opportunity as one light to be light in darkness, a force for good and for his glory. But it's so much better than that, that when we come and see as the church of God, we have the privilege to not only be a single light, but multiple lights coming together as the church. We are called to be a people of power, the church of God. And that we as a church have been able to do amazing things because of, you realize there are churches in Nepal right now that are meeting because this church had a vision to plant churches in Nepal. That we have ministries in Guatemala and Zambia and community missions and the Caribbean and all kinds of places over the world that we get to do this because all these lights have come together to do something for God's glory. And that we had the privilege to illuminate the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. And what's amazing about that is we're not here promoting the name Pleasant City Church. We're the backdrop to the cross. We're the backdrop. We get to play the background to what God is doing. And here's the truth. The war is not between light and darkness. The war is not between light and darkness. The war, by, by the way, you know why? Because there's an empty cross and an empty grave. There is no more war with light and darkness anymore. But the war is with the will to shine in the darkness or hide in the huddle. Think about that. The Bible says that. The Matthew passage there talks about that. That It's not this idea of light and darkness. It's this idea of, am I going to hide the light? Am I going put, put to it, put it under a basket? Or am I going to stick it up on a pole? Or am I going to hide in the huddle? 
The huddle, can I just tell you, the huddle is a comfortable place. I love the huddle. Most people like huddles, unless you're just like a major introvert that doesn't like, doesn't like people touching you or whatever. But, you know, the huddle, there's something pretty awesome about the huddle, right? You get to feel that camaraderie and that, that just that great feeling. And this is kind of hopefully what you're feeling this morning. That's our goal and intent for you to feel the huddle. But, you know, you can't stay in the huddle. The huddle by itself doesn't accomplish anything. It's when we break the huddle. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He is breaking down the huddle. Lastly, when we go and tell, a calling for a few becomes a command for all. A calling for a few becomes a command for all. Matthew 28, verse 16 Back to Matthew 28, we're following that, that event, that resurrection event, and what that day looked like for them. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Come and see moment. But some doubted. I don't understand that at all, but some did. Verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Remember, he meets us on our step to faith, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, we have a responsibility as the church that the unfinished work of the church is to go and tell every person from every nation about the finished work of Christ. The unfinished work of the church is to go and tell every person of every nation about the finished work of Christ. To go and tell and ultimately to make disciples, to reproduce who we are as believers and here's the thing, this isn't just a calling for a special group of few people. This isn't just for pastors, it's not just for deacons, it's for every person. And it's not just a calling, it is a command for every person who says they follow Jesus to go and tell and make disciples, telling people what God has done and is doing and will do. Look at the application. When we go and tell, we are living a life of purpose and progress that begins with an empty tomb right here in Matthew 28 and ends with a wide earth, what we see right now today. And here's the thing that's so great about this. This isn't a call to sacrifice as much as a call to satisfaction. That Yeah, there's, sac there's definitely sacrifice in going and tell. I I I'm looking at Callie Luckadoo in here this morning. She's sacrificed to be in Guatemala. She's sacrificed from her friends and family. I think about Charlie Adams, who's in North Africa right now. I think about Abraham and Kamala in Nepal. I think about the carpenters in Zambia. There's sacrifice, and it's not just that. There's sacrifice that you would have here on earth. The, the chance of risking ridicule and shame and persecution. So yeah, there's sacrifice, but you know what's even greater? When we go and tell, there is a call to sacrifice, but there is so much greater a call to satisfaction. That we don't have to live in a life of discontentment anymore and thinking, you know what, I wish my life counted for something. That God has given us a way for your life to actually count for something. Something greater than a 401k, something greater than a boat or another house or getting through college or finding a husband or a wife. It, th those are great, but here's the thing, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but here's the thing, the real satisfaction, the lasting satisfaction is when we accomplish the purpose and progress of God's plan through worship, through coming and seeing, 
and through missions, going and telling. So here's the question again, with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing and faithful to what God has for you? We're not going to have an invitation, but I just want to encourage you this week to allow God to speak to you about this issue. To that coworker or that friend or even, even sometimes more intimidating than that, that family member, that you would be obedient, that you would face your fear and allow it to become faith, that you wouldn't see people as interruptions, but you would see people as opportunities, that you would shine into the darkness, that you would realize that you are commanded by God to go and tell the world about what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do.